In the beginning, there was darkness. A void waiting to be filled with the echoes of destiny. From the depths of time, legends emerged. Heroes forged in the fires of adversity, their stories etched in the fabric of eternity. Through the sands of ancient deserts, across the vast expanse of galaxies, and amidst the tumultuous waves of the ocean, their journeys began. But amidst the chaos, there arose a whisper, a call to action, a beacon of hope. Now, as the world holds its breath, a new tale unfolds, a story of courage, of triumph against all odds. Join us as we delve into the depths of imagination, as we embark on a journey beyond the realms of possibility. For in every tale lies a lesson, in every legend a truth waiting to be discovered. This is not just a podcast. This is an odyssey, a quest for knowledge, a quest for inspiration, a quest for the very essence of what it means to be human. Welcome, dear listeners, to a world of infinite possibilities. Welcome, dear listeners, to the True Life Podcast. Welcome back to the True Life Podcast. We are here with Mr. Wizard himself, the man, the myth, the legend. Welcome ben, how are you, my friend? Oh, boy, I'm doing great, except for I got some technical difficulties here. Hold on one second. Man, the myth, the legend. Um, let's see. Oh, boy, I'm doing great. Except for I got some technical difficulties here. Interesting. Oh, there it is. I found the tab. All right. So we're a little nice. live echo here. It should be going away. All right. Sounds better now. Sounds better now. And now we go. All right. Nice. <laughs> Fantastic, my friend. How's it going today? Uh, it's actually a bit of a cold day in Colorado. But uh, that's okay. I've been running for the past three days, so one day break when it doesn't hurt too bad. So when you say you've been running, are you, you know, whenever you tell me you're running, I'm thinking you're taking mushrooms and running. So um, is that what's going on, or are you just preparing, or just something you do on the daily? Uh, trying to do it on the daily. I was up to the daily for a while. I was up to about 50 miles a week, and that felt really good. Uh, and then I had a little bit of an injury, and then so I've been kind of just working that out. Uh, but past three days, I did 19 miles. So Nice. Yeah, you're about six, six miles a day right there, so that's pretty good, man. Yeah. Can you feel a difference in your body when you don't do it? Oh, yeah. Yeah, uh, everything starts to hurt a little bit more. I, you know, things get out of alignment a lot easier. Uh, I, I feel just tons better when I, when I'm able to do it every day, at least like three miles, I feel great. But, you know, I yeah. always find good excuses to not do it too. You know, oh, I got to get this done. I got to get that done. I got to go do this. And, but yeah, I, I try to make it a bit more of a practice these days. 
Okay, so what do you think about that that mindset? Whether you're whether you've been an entrepreneur your whole life, whether it comes down to building a company, building a website, or going for a run, what is that internal dialogue? Like that little bit of resistance that we find. Like, what do you think that is? Uh, well, you know, it's that inner just laziness, that inherent, I don't want to do it. Prove to me why I should do it. You know, where's the motivation to do this? Uh, I think I, I'm not entirely sure where it comes. Never really thought about it, but I, I would imagine it's one of those things that really starts at a young age, right? It's the, it's the clean your room. Uh, no, I don't want to clean my room. And then you just sit there and you just, you know, you just dwell and watch and sit and look at a dirty room until you get yelled at enough times when you actually clean the room. Maybe it starts back then. Maybe, maybe it starts even a little bit earlier, but yeah, that, that mentality of just, you know, especially if you've been productive, um, you know, we could go into the neurochemistry side of it and there is, you know, different cycles to the day, like the ultradian uh, rhythm, which is like a 90 minute cycle that you can do hard effort, you know, mental or physical effort in that 90 minute window. And then beyond that, it starts to become much more of an effort to continue up at that pace or at that rapidity of, of effort. Uh, so, I mean, you know, there's, there's things to look at it from different perspectives, I suppose, but at the end of the day, it's, you know, that inner, inner crybaby, inner bitch. <laughs> you know what? Like I've been thinking a lot about inner dialogue, but when you brought up the idea of these different rhythms, like the circadian rhythm or what, what was the, the other one that you mentioned? The uh, ultradian. Ultradian okay, the cycle. So I, I'm wondering if on some level we could draw, like you could, you could somehow measure the rhythms throughout the day and then using your your blood or your heartbeat, measure your own rhythms and kind of match that up. Do you think there's a way to kind of to draw that out? Yeah, I I think so. Um, there's you could tap into the ultradian cycle, you could tap into the circadian cycles. Uh, one way that everybody's kind of familiar but not familiar with this is intermittent fasting. Mm. Uh, so when you start to play with, you know, that cycle of, of feeding and, and, and fasting, you get to the point where instead of your body just processing food for while it's awake, it gets to go off and do some other functions that seem to be pretty reparative and, you know, life extending, um, you know, anti-inflammatory, a lot of really nice benefits. And so you can start to, people are already playing with this kind of in, inadvertently. Uh, and then there's people like Dr. Andrew Huberman, who has a podcast. Uh, he's a neuroscientist. Uh, he really goes into kind of, you know, what you can do to actually <clears throat> like physical things to interact with these types of systems, how to, you know, rev them up, rev them down, you know, things like cold exposure, heat therapies, different types of supplements, breath work. Uh, there's a lot of active tools that you can do that actually really kind of and, and, you know, we kind of know this without knowing it too. If you go off and hyperventilate for 30 seconds, all of a sudden you feel it. You know, there's there's an excessive, you know, there's, you get into a hypoxic state and, you know, you go, whoa, oh my goodness. You know, people hallucinate, people have visions, people pass out, people do all sorts of things in that, in that hypoxic state. Um, but so I think there is definitely a way to tool this. And I kind of experiment with it in my life. It's just kind of one of my 
practices of just, well, you know, trying to make sure my hard work is split into these, you know, 90 minute chunks. And then I usually take about an hour break between that. And then uh, you can, you can get about three good ones in a day is what I found. Yeah. See, I think this all ties into the world of psychology and I think we could even tie it to psychedelics. If we look at the way the world is moving, it seems like we're becoming so intertwined in the world of interdisciplinary action. So I, you know, I see the world of, of physical education beginning to mold with the world of psychology. Like when your body is in good shape, your mind is in good shape, probably because the blood is flowing through your body the same way it's flowing through your brain. And if you have a blockage upstairs, you probably have one downstairs. Some people say that the body is a manifestation of your health. And so if we can look at these rhythms, be it the circadian rhythm or the cycles in which we, we can oxygenate our body, I think that we can implement a sort of physical strategy. Like I, I'm not aware of any psychologist doing this right now, but what do you think about that being a part of, of phys, you know, physical therapy, having some psychology with it? So, so if someone had a, a, an, an issue with a relationship, you would treat that relationship by helping them treat the problems in their bodies. You think there's a there there? I think so. Uh, you know, it's all vastly interconnected as above, so below, as out, as outside, so within, right? Yeah. Uh, and I think there's a lot of wisdom to be drawn from, from that perspective of thinking about the situation. Uh, and it's really interesting because if you kind of look at the different sets of literature, you see this on these individual pathways of medicine or, or therapies. And, you know, they'll say, they'll recommend that exercise is great for X, Y, and Z, but nobody's saying exercise is great for everything, even though it is. But if you go down each in enough of the literature, you always see exercise as one of those things that is always beneficial. And I think I just read a couple of days ago where they just are now allowing exercise uh, as a prescription. So the doctor can now prescribe exercise because apparently they weren't allowed to do that by the, the, the medical association. Wow. That's a, that to me is obtuse in a few ways. Number one, you know, in some ways it, it's almost like they're, they're not forcing you to exercise, but it, it's weird that they would prescribe it. I guess that we would define prescription as like, um, Oh, I don't know. Um, so something only the doctor can give you. And I say that because I think of drugs, you know, when I think of a prescription, I think it's something that a doctor gives you, but it doesn't have to be that it could just be advice from a doctor. Right. So I guess in that angle, why wouldn't a prescription for exercise be okay? Yeah. It's just, it's interesting to think about a doctor prescribing exercise. Well, it's really interesting to think about that. We have this whole medical system set up the way it is. Yes, it is. Uh, you know, the and where it's really interesting, I think what you might have been trying to touch on was, uh, you know, people are so helplessly inured to that system that they can't see beyond the idea that they can do something unless it's prescribed by a doctor. Yes. 
and, and that is a you know that that kind of ha that should make a, a reasoning individual go hmm I'm not sure that seems right right <laughs> something <laughs> off about that situation yes thank you that's that is what I was what I was striving to get at and it in some ways you know you know we talk about going full circle and here we have doctors now beginning to prescribe exercise when probably 50 years ago, the doctor would be like, why don't you go out and get outside for a little bit and it'll work itself out. Walk it off. Walk, <laughs> rub some dirt on it, right? <laughs> rub some dirt on it, walk it off. Yeah, it's fascinating to think about. My, um, I have a niece, a beautiful young girl named Lauren, and she's getting ready to apply to uh, for sports medicine. <laughs> and uh, she is writing this paper to apply for colleges. And she was asking me, hey, George, do you think that there is room for psychedelics in sports medicine? And I was first off, I was blown away. I'm like, this little girl's on point here. Yeah, I do think there's room for psychedelics in sports medicine. In fact, I could see that people who want to perform at the highest level may, in fact, want to take psychedelics. When I think about using the brain in athletes, I always think of Ken Norton, how he was hypnotized when he put down Muhammad Ali and the same sort of mental exercises can kind of be done through psychedelics. I, I don't see why there's not sports team having psychedelic retreats or one-on-one -on -one coaching or mentors that have psychedelics. I think that that might be the next level for sports. And as someone like yourself, who you're the only person I know, Ben, who, uh, who introduced me to this idea of strenuous activity and psychedelics. So I wanted to get your opinion on your ideas about psychedelics and high-level athletics? Uh, you know, I think you're right that we're going to see that trend, first of all. Uh, I think it's really evident that usually the, the famous sports people kind of follow the famous celebrity Hollywood-type people, yeah. and that's where a lot of those people are at right now. And I, I wouldn't be surprised if – I mean, we just heard uh, Aaron Rodgers – uh, talked on Joe Rogan said he went down and had an ayahuasca trip before he won the last Super Bowl that he won. Uh, so I think we've kind of already seen the tipping point in that. And I think, you know, there was, I guess there was a celebration last week where they, his teammates after a touchdown all pretended they drank ayahuasca and, <laughs> and did a little funny thing. Which, so it's already pervading into the mainstream culture you know, in those very interesting inroads that something that kind of takes over the zeitgeist does. And so I think, you know, we're kind of, we're, we're entering kind of a new era when it comes to, you know, sports medicine, for sure. You got all these supplements, you have all this, you know, all the research chemicals, we'll call them that. Yeah. Uh, you know, there's, you know, you have all sorts of different plant derivatives being derived from every single continent on the planet. And, and I think the, really only the largest hurdle is something like, um, you know, legality. And there's already places like Portland and Denver that are decriminalizing a lot of the stuff. So probably those would be the epicenters of, of something like that. But, you know, sports, um, psychedelic medicine therapy probably will be a field in the near future, I would imagine. Uh, and from the perspective of kind of what could be happening physically, you know, we already talked about the inner brain connections and, you know, the ionophores and greater charge density being delivered to the, the entirety of the body. These are the things that, you know, you can train years and years and years to develop 
that all of a sudden you can you basically get nitro in the system. You, you're throwing nitrous oxide in, into the tank. You know, you're pushing the button. Uh, now, you know, that's just from my very personal limited experience and, you know, limited experience of a couple other people. But if, you know, you could take a relatively moderate American shape, in shape person at 48 years old and have them running up mountains, you know, there's something to be said about that. Uh, and I think not from just, you know, the performance aspect, but also, you know, the healing aspect as well. You know, it never ceases to amaze me the wisdom of people that you talk to. And you and I have had a lot of conversations, but not until right now that I put this together. We're like, you know, are you... Let me just, I got to, I'm just going to do a shotgun out the back right here with a few thoughts. So bear with me while I try to get this out here. You know, do you, I wonder if you keep journals and now I, I know you can't tell me the people you work with and stuff like that, but I'm curious if the guinea pigs or the people that you have <laughs> begun to show your technique to, and by technique, I mean taking mushrooms or psilocybin and exercising and running and getting out there and hitting the pavement. I'm wondering if if you have kept journals on their performance or if you keep in touch with them so that you could keep track of their potential, uh, you know, where they're at on their health and what they've done for them. Because it seems to me that like you could be on the cutting edge of this particular type of, of therapy. You know, I don't know if you would call it a therapy or if you would call it uh, some sort of, you know, personal physical advancement or brain body advancement or you know name naming aside you're the first person i have talked to that that has actual personal evidence of going through this process i guess you could say you're kind of pioneering it in a way but i'm wondering if if you have kept track of some of the people you've worked with and have you thought about maybe taking this one step further uh yeah i actually the people who i take down the path they're pretty close friends um so always in contact uh so yeah and it's one of those things where i haven't really made it scientific to the sense that i'm i'm actually you know got some spreadsheets and, and taking you know heart and, and blood samples and all that stuff <laughs> uh because i on on one level, I just don't have the time for that. Right. But on on another level, it, it, it you know it is just kind of it was one of those pioneering things. It's like, huh, well, it worked for me. Let me go. I I know a couple other fairly crazy individuals. Let me see yeah. if it'll work for them too. Uh, but you know, it is one of those things where I want to you know if that's something that actually does tend you know turn out to work for a greater number of people, it's one of those things where that's information that should be shared freely yeah. and just like the information of, you know, my book, I want it to be yeah. shared freely. And if anybody wants a free copy, they're free to ask me for one. Um, you know, it, it's, it's one of those things where I don't think it's something that I would want to profit off of in my life. Uh, and there's, you know, there's been a few things that I've ran into in my, in my world that have been that way. And that's just one of them. You know, I think the, uh, the monetization of money is a very dangerous game to play. And I think if we were honest about everything that we at least see in recorded history, 
we'd probably say that it's it's been a, a failing endeavor so far. <laughs> yeah, I agree. I, I that's one reason I enjoy talking to you so much is that I think we share a passion for living and a passion for sharing information that can make people better. You know, as soon as as soon as some of those those as soon as money's introduced into the conversation, the conversation changes. What could be a conversation about making the people around you better turns into a conversation of, hey, how can I charge the people around me to tell them what they could learn for free? <laughs> right. And, you know, in, in that there's always, I and I would recommend anybody who wants to go down this path, seek out at least somebody who's experienced in the, the shamanistic ways of things. If, uh, you know, just don't go run around the desert outside like a man then like myself. Uh, not the most safe thing. Disclaimer, disclaimer, disclaimer. Um, <laughs> uh, but it's one of those things where I think the more people that do kind of figure these stuff out, and it's not just this, it's all the other movements that are moving into the psychedelic world. Yeah. Uh, as all of this becomes more and more common knowledge, I think it gets to a, a a tipping point a precipice where you know you really can't you won't be able to charge for it and it doesn't mean people aren't going to try right i think you know they've already been patenting offshoots of every single psychoactive molecule that we know of right so you know they had a they had a carbon atom here that, or a hydrogen atom there and then you know into that chain of molecules and then they just say oh we invented this which yeah, kind of that yeah. yeah, that's that's the the farm that's the pharmaceutical way of or the maybe maybe that's the strategy produced by big pharma. You know, and, and speaking of strategies and monetization, I was talking to this guy yesterday. Uh for some reason we were talking about copiers and, and toner. And he was he was buying some toner or something. And I, I I forgot how we got talking about it, but we did. And it just got me thinking like, wow, here's a company like Xerox that built a business model based on addiction. Like, what does that say? Like, you know what I mean by that? Like, if you have a nice copier, the copier, they'll almost give it to you, even mm -hmm. though it you know costs more to make it. But then they get you on the toner because you got to buy that toner all the time. That's the same way as someone who's hooked on like crack has to go and buy the crack all the time. You know, when I was a kid, all the, all the, all the dope dealers used to say, hey, the first one's free because they mm -hmm. knew once once you get the first one, hey, you're probably going to want more. So it's this idea of addiction that – what does it say about us that we have monetized addiction? Like we have built business, not just business, but profitable business on – like we've seized this idea of addiction and monetized it. Like that seems to me on some level to be a bit nefarious. Well, I – it is on some level a bit nefarious, but it's also not new, right? What do you mean? Uh, I, well, think about it. Okay. All, all of the businesses back, well, you know, we'll just go back to East India Trading Company. For oh. Look at the addiction <laughs> that they ran around the world, right? Yeah. So, you know, this, and I think if we were probably to take it further back, it gets down to the point where uh, you remove the barter system and you put in, uh, well, maybe even with the barter system, you know, maybe it's just a, maybe it is kind of just a, an arm of tribalism, 
because you know even if you think it's about how some of the descriptions of how the indigenous tribes are in throughout the world you know there's room in all of those tribes for very interesting people and characters and addictions and uh, deformities and all sorts of different aspects of humanity uh, so maybe it is kind of you know an effect of just us recognizing the vast potential differences and the vast amount of variables that can fall upon us yeah that you know <sighs> I guess, you know, as soon as you said East India Trading Company, then I thought to myself, maybe it's just my first time seeing this model based on addiction. Maybe it's always been based on addiction, you know, I, and, and, and then you, you, yeah, that's a great way to put it. I, I guess if you need something, you know, addiction, what's the difference between addiction and supply and demand? Pretty similar, right? Like Definitely I want it. Addictions, addictions entwined with supply and demand for sure. I mean, yeah. you know, even even to the effect where you know we're we're keeping up with the Joneses is the modern term, right? We're addicted to constantly this this consumerism, and I don't think consumerism has never been not a part of the system. It might be a greater portion of it these days, uh, but you know, I again, I think it really could be drawn back to just the kind of how the diversity of humanity and how we we approach this world and walk throughout this world and then pass that information along okay let me ask you this how can you use the idea of no absolutes how can you use that to battle the idea of addiction or consumerism or or, or how can you use the th no absolute thinking model to get away from that idea of consumerism? Well, I, you know, one of the, the beautiful things that I have in my head about the model is, is that it always makes all of the, all the borders fuzzy, right? Because in, and in doing so you open yourself up to always being able to take in new information without having those hard borders of your perspective in the world, you're, you know, you're more than willing to then add information into the entire equation and be like, oh, well, that actually makes a lot of sense. Whereas you're, if you have those borders and you have these walls inside because you, you know, you believe a certain way or, you know, you've accepted the absolute of something a certain way, you know, getting around those things can often be almost physically debilitating for some people at some times, right? When they get a, a, a counterpoint in their face and you see all these people screaming at each other on the streets, you know, voice creaking like they're, they're a toddler and can't control their emotions and it's all broiled over. Uh, that's what you run into when you, when you put up all of these divisions in the world and all of these absolutes. And when you don't have them, when, you, when you're approaching the world from a no absolutes perspective, you can then see the forest through the trees. You can see what it means to, to see what an addicted society is, is. You can see the origins of it. You can see where it comes from. And it doesn't offend you. It doesn't hurt you. In fact, it can even inspire you to make you know changes in your own life or, or help other people. Yeah, that's well put. That makes me think that, you know, addiction is is the idea of absolutes. I mean, if you're addicted, 
you absolutely must have this. If you're addicted, you must get this or you'll die. You know, and it's it's a way of shutting off the possibilities around you, which would be no absolutes, right? If 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 you have something that you need, it's an absolute. But if you have no absolutes, then you have another way to get to this thing you want to get to, which would what I guess would be like the fuzzy borders there. Right. Or, you know, in a more specific case, the the relief of pain or the relief know, the of pain. Gain, you know, the gaining of pleasure in some instances, you know, the pursuit of love in other instances. Uh, if if you tie yourself into these into these absolute boxes, you know you're you run into these walls over and over again, and, like, and you just keep wondering, you know, well, why me? Instead of figuring out how to get around the walls, and this is kind of what you know we've talked a lot about when when it comes to psychedelics. You know, the the ability to move beyond those walls because you can zoom out and see them from a distance. You can reflect upon that without, you know, having yourself tied to that ego for just a couple of minutes even can can allow you to just walk right past it because you realize it wasn't actually just a huge wall. I was just staring at this little tiny sliver of wall and I was unwilling to move past it. And, you know, it, so there's multiple ways to climb the mountain. I think from a philosophical approach, you know, it it, give, it also gives one a foundation to really draw back upon and, and, you know, fall back upon whenever there's questions, you know, around you, especially when crazy things happen, like, say, a pandemic, right? <laughs> yeah. You know, it's in some ways, it's this chaos of a pandemic. It's the chaos of war. It's the chaos of an invisible enemy that there's like this weird dichotomy because you, you would think that in the moments of chaos, it would free you to think differently, but it seems to have the opposite effect. It seems to kind of shoehorn people in one direction. What do you think that is? Um, flight or flight response. Fight or flight. An so, emotional response. Okay. Yeah. So when that happens, you know, uh, basically they've shown you actually do get physical tunnel vision right your peripheral vision shuts off the uh, all of the flexing of your muscles changes the the way that the lights entering your eyes that triggers off a whole other series of systems in the brain that kind of shut off the the higher reasoning type stuff and kick in you know the, the reptilian brain as they call it and so once you get into that mode, you know, you're, you're either hunting or you're the prey. And so that's all there is at that stage. <laughs> it's, it's fascinating to me to think that if we know that on a personal level to, to watch this pandemic that we just had or, you know, some sort of chaos, it's fascinating to me to see it on an organism level. You know what I mean by that? Like it's interesting mm -hmm. to see a, a small group of people try try to reason it out and then another group of people like we all got to do have an emotional response you know because we all know people in our life that probably are both but it's weird to see it happen as a society i thought so too i you know the second that it all started happening i you know i told my the people closest to me i said this is going to be the greatest psychological experiment ever ran on the human populace because not necessarily, you know, that there hasn't been other things that have affected great numbers of people, but simply because we have, it's all played out on a global stage. 
this this internet driven communication hub yeah. that you know we're all a part of all of a sudden so now all of the everything gets magnified right and we saw yeah. that all of the little things that would normally be you know some one of the people in the town hall being you know raising their fist turned into you know hundreds of thousands of people all raising their fist collectively and we just see these massive magnifications on on all sides really and it just became a really clear demonstration of how close we are to tribalism still and and you know what on on another level too i think two parts that are really dangerous are the ability to measure that which is happening and the disconnect between the people at the top that are doing the measuring. And I know that's kind of a mouthful of words. So let me try to break it down. As these things are happening and there's all these people responding on the internet, there's, you know, there's these different thermometers throughout the world that can take the temperature of how angry or how upset or how sad or how close people are to the edge, whether it's a, an, an economic thermometer or, or it's a psychological thermometer, you know, Goop by by people just going on Google and, and searching crisis. You know they think that what I'm trying to say is people can now monitor or measure the response of the people, and the people that are doing that are not necessarily the city governor or the or the state governor or the president. Mm -hmm. The people that are measuring it are disconnected, so they have the freedom to try and you know implement strategies to to move things around and if it fails it's no big deal because it doesn't really hurt them you know it's this technocratic type of government that's emerging that is incredibly powerful but also i, I wouldn't say it scares me but it brings it's alarming i think it's alarming mm -hmm. i it's alarming and, and highly potentially dangerous yes um you know most people don't know about the Pinkerton army and the labor movement and what that, what kind of uh, conflict that turned into, you know, there's things that were called battles because there were so many people involved. Uh, that's a return to something like that. Uh, if you end up with the, with a whole bunch of big technocratic city states, they're all privatized armies. They're basically goon squads. Uh, and you have a whole different series of dictators emerge, right? Because they're all top-down organizations. They all have CEOs and, you know, they're second-in-commands and everything else like this, but it turns very dictatorial very quick, uh, and there's no constitutions for protections of rights. There's, you know, you might have a worker contract, uh, but at the end of the day, that worker contract is subject to now the will of the state, which is these technocratic city-states. Uh, and I think it, this has been recognized. There was that whole, you know, uh, Section 230 to try to, you know, make social media companies a bit more compliant with all of this. But all that really effectively did is kind of what Mark Zuckerberg told us happened just a little bit ago on Joe Rogan, that when the FBI comes a call and, you know, they say, how high would you like us to jump? Yeah. And, you know, if they have the capability to say that, you know, for the FBI, that means that they have that capability baked into the entirety of the system. And they've been running all sorts of experiments to what you were mentioning before. All of these experiments to what? 
to figure out how to piss people off, to figure out what makes people feel good, to figure out how to elicit emotional responses, how to figure out to get more engagement. You know, uh, all these video games are the same thing. Look at all these games like Farmville's and stuff like that that we're making tens of millions of dollars a month for, for what? Flashing lights and at the right time and bright colors at the right moment to keep that constant drip of dopamine flooding the neural system so you feel like you're getting rewarded every five minutes until you're just burned out at the end of the day and have no emotional room for anybody in your life, no ability to love, care, and be compassionate. I mean, you know, and these are proven things, you know, not, you know but there's evidence in the scientific literature to suggest that this is what's happening. So it, there's a lot to be said about that. <laughs> and I don't Man. think, and I don't think much of it is good. Yeah. It doesn't sound very good. I mean, to what end, to what end are the flashing lights to what end is the scientific research on social media? Like to what end? Like, you know, I, I read a study about the social engineers that would go into people's feeds and just feed them negative information for like six mm -hmm. months. And then they saw this increase in suicides and in anger behavior and in mm -hmm. violence. They took people with positive stuff and they showed positive influence in their life. Like to what end is this research doing? Like what, if we know positive you know, to what end? Are you just going to feed people positive stuff and keep them in this hopium world? Are you just feeding people negative stuff? Are you just doing it because you can, because people are like rats in cages to your social media campaign? Like to what end? I don't understand the point. It, it seems like the only end is a monetary end. And it, it, it's, it's sad to me. Well, I think most of the ends are monetary ends, but I think you'll get a, a conglomeration of motivations uh, throughout, mm. throughout, you know, even if they're secondary motivations, but some primary motivations too. Uh, for instance, political parties are very much primarily manipulate or interested in manipulating as many people as they can. Yeah. Uh, you know, ultimately that's a, a monetary end as well. If you if you keep pulling on the string, of course. Uh, but yeah, whenever we have these big monopolistic systems, it, they become inherently corrupt, it seems. Uh, and part of the reason I think is because in order to achieve that level of you know, quote unquote success, uh, you're basically, you're destroying your competition. You're removing the marketplace and you're making things very, you know, like monocropping essentially. And we know what, how, you know, we know what monocropping does to the land over a given period of time. And I think, you know, that's where you see a lot of stifling and innovation. That's why we don't see a lot of projects. That's why all the renewable energy stuff hasn't really come around either. You know, the technology for that stuff has been known for a very, very, very long time. Some of it was under patent for a long time, so it just sat there under patent. You can only get prototypes of it for you know millions of dollars, and then and then finally the patents expire, and now oh okay here you go world you can have this technology, but now there's no money invested in it because <clears throat> it's been outpaced by the other yeah. technologies that have been invested in. Whether and, and you know the only cost-benefit analysis that goes into it, it usually is, at the end of the day is can we win? Can we beat our competition? Can we can we acquire enough resources? Uh, and this is a very 
you know, we're watching what this plays out to uh, at the end of at the end of the game. And this is and this is what we're seeing. We're seeing, you know, just look at what's happened in the past week in terms of the, you know conflicts around the world. I mean, you got Armenia and Azerbaijan, you got Turkmenistan and Kazakhstan. You have, you know. Taiwan, United States saying it's going to put boots on the ground in Taiwan. You have uh, Russia is saying that they're calling up 300,000 troops and are ready to use nukes. I mean, we have, you know, we have conflicts breaking out all over in Mexico with cartels and the government and generals and the army and all sorts of things happening down there. So we're, we're seeing the results of this game played out over the past, you know, say, 250 to 400 years of imperialism slash colonialism. It's kind yeah. of where it started. Yeah, it's um on some on so many levels. Like I think we one of one of many reasons why I love talking to you is that you're so well read and you know about the Pinkertons, you know about history, you know about geography, and you you read up on the, the technological takeover and, and how this was the same thing that happened a hundred years ago and the and ultimately where science can lead us to and you know I, on some levels like it just it doesn't make sense and i know it doesn't make sense because i don't have all the information but some problems i don't understand are you know why in the world would germany the uk why are they willing to sacrifice all their people to energy when they could just buy it for cheap from just put the fucking pipeline, just run the gas through the pipeline and give it to the people. Like the fact that they're willing to sacrifice all their people. Hey, we're going to let, we'd rather let our people die than buy your gas. Like, are mm -hmm. you freaking kidding me? Like, no wonder why there's revolutions. Like do, do the P like on, and on one level, I think to myself, well, no one could be that stupid to be in power and just be like, we're are we're we're not gonna turn it on because we don't want to buy your gas. Like they, like that is that how dumb they are? Like you don't see that your people are gonna rise up and murder you. Do you not see that? Do you not care? Like is it what what am I missing here? Is it a, is it a level of malevolence where these people are like, we're these people don't understand the long-term game, that this gas field is ours, or you know. What is, is there a grander plan that I am not privy to? Is it, is it generational money where people there's real owners of the world and they are playing their game or, you know, is it, is it that because this fight will, will designate the supply chain holders for the next thousand years? Is it, is, is it something I'm missing? Like what, what's going on here, man? Like, why is it blowing up like this? So I think, I think where a lot of the confusion comes from is because th that question of why, just as you articulated yeah. wonderfully, is so multifaceted, you know, and you, you hit a lot of the nails on the head, and I think there's a few more on top of it. Uh, but all of those, you have to imagine, these are all separate individual groups and entities, and yes, there's going to be crossover between them. But by and large, they're motivated by their own machinations and generational plots. Uh, you know, their own just, I want to conquer the world in the business, in XYZ business sector. Um, 
you know, we own, you know, like the Saudis and their oil. There's all of these, there's all of these different agendas. And yet these people do get around and they smoke cigars together and sip on the finest of liquors and whiskeys and whatnot from throughout the world. But they don't like each other. It's, you know, you and I have a little bit of insight into this on a, a much, much lower level than the upper echelons of stuff. But when I ran my fishing business, um, you know, people would hire me for a couple of weeks and them and their buddies would all, and they would bring them all down for, you know, whatever party it was, their yearly kick shindig in this foreign country, pay everything for two weeks, you know, including me and my, my other buddy as a fishing guide. Uh, and it was a drop in the bucket for these guys. And so I got to set on the fly on the wall for some of these conversations. Uh, and, you know, other people would be around too from that kind of level of society. And it was like sitting in a high school lunchroom. It really was. It blew me away. It was cattiness. It was, you know, all about entitlement. It was all about, you know, presentation. It, it, it was just, it was everything. It was like all of the kind of what we would call negative aspects of, of a human kind of magnified. And so that got me asking the question, which you originally asked is, you know, what's the disconnect here? And that disconnect, I think, is a lot of these people grow up in a world where they're not exposed to the reality that we know. Right? Nobody's threatening to punch them in the face because everybody knows who their daddy is. And, you know, nobody has ever challenged them or, you know, they've never had to earn anything in their lives because there's always trust fund money and you know a phone call away or there's even a butler following them around all the time this creates massive detachments from reality and i think once you have those detachments from reality then you get a reinforcement of hey here's some power now you just put yourself in this feedback loop of absurdity and you end up you know a, a wild pompous ass and then you're in a room of a, a whole bunch of other wild pompous asses and you're all sitting there joking about how you're all wild pompous asses secretly thinking about how you all hate each other. And it, it's, it, it's, you know, it sounds like, um, you know, some absurdity, you know, airplane type movie, but that's kind of, they, you know, that's what I saw at the small scale. And then if you, if you extrapolate it and you think about it, and then you look at like how a Donald Trump has, right. And you're like, Oh, okay. Now I can get a little bit more insight into this. And, you know, a lot of those people keep face for the, for the cameras, but less and less these days too. And so we're seeing this kind of unravel as well. We're seeing all of these little tiny fractures of the system magnified at scale look like these huge caverns, you know, grand canyons. Yeah. You know, and, and on, on a positive note for, the internet and social media and technocracy, I think it does allow a, a sort of transparency, you know, and, mm -hmm. and, and maybe things, maybe it's the fact that we as just everyday people that work for a living, read books and, and, and go to work and weren't given everything like maybe we are just now getting to peer behind the curtain a little bit and go, Hey, what the frick is this? What, what is this? You taking all this stuff here, you know? And, and on some level, 
the the level of corruption has gotten to a point where you know think of it as as the people have found for whatever reason whether they were given everything or born into everything or maybe there's some real people that have forced their way to the big boy table they're they're playing a pot right now where people are going to leave there's going to be people that get kicked off the island there's going to be people that leave the big poker table and mm-hmm. a lot of people have their chips pushed in mm-hmm. so when you if if i look at it from that angle if i look at oh well israel wants to build a pipeline oh well saudi arabia wants to have their pipeline come through it and then iran's just they're going all in on their you know their king eight over here you know and they're like eh, that's suited you know what i said let's let's see what we get on the river here you know, and and you got Russia that's like we're all in. Yeah, we mm-hmm. don't. And and let me just tell you, I don't bluff. You know, you got Putin over here looking like he's got a pair of aces. You know, and like it's it's fascinating to look at the great game from that angle and mm-hmm. go, oh, this is what Kissinger was writing about, or oh, mm-hmm. this is what the Devil's Chessboard was all about. I think we are getting to see, you know, uh. A, maybe the first hand or at least the first hand that I have seen been capable of seeing watching people play at the, at the table. And it, on that level, it's pretty fascinating. Right. And my first introduction to that table was those, those days in the fishing business, listening to me. And I said, Oh, now I see the game because, and you know, you, for me and you, we care about people's feelings. Yeah. They're, you know, they're how they're doing in life. we we go way far out of our way to ensure that we don't hurt people. These people, <laughs> these people hurting people is not even part of the equation right. because it's, it is a piece on the chessboard. It's my rook is taking your queen. That's, that's what it is. There's, there's no, and there's no batting an eyelash. There's no loss of sleep at night, apparently for a lot of these people. Now they're all usually in drunken stupors or drugged up stupors, but you know, I, I guess people have to deal with you know the torment of their fellow their fellow human somehow, or not, or they, they just don't see them as a fellow human. They just see well, them as a I, yeah. And I guess you know, I, I I guess there would be a few sociopaths, psychopaths out there, but you would think that if that's a small percentage of people. In general, there's got to be something in there a little bit, at least you would imagine. But yeah, yeah, I, I, we I think we have spoken about this prior. I, I think at the at least on a corporate level, I can see I can see the self selection for sociopathic behavior. Like, okay, right. this person gets moved up mm-hmm. when they step on everybody. When they mm-hmm. when this person has blinders on and they can only see the mighty dollar. That's the guy you want in a in an upper management position because that's the guy that's going to throw everybody under the bus to make the profits. That's also the guy you don't feel bad about firing because he's a piece of garbage because he does that, you know. Mm-hmm. And and the higher up you go, you know, it's almost like you're rewarding that behavior. Like here's a guy on the fence that may or may not take that path, but then he does something that throws the employees under the bus and you move them up, so you've reinforced that behavior. Mm-hmm. And now all of a sudden. Here's the guy above him saying like, you know what? If you don't do it, I'm going to fire you for what you did earlier. So it, it just sharpens that person to become more and more of a sociopath. It's like, well, and then they, and then people have a tendency to fail up as well. Oh, once you get to point. that, once you get to that level and, and you articulated exactly why that is, is because now you're, you're breeding the yes, man, the yes, man. 
And so you know that they're going to do your bidding. You know they're towing the company line. And so you, you reward those people even when they go off and fail miserably. You know, you just transfer them to a different department or a different company under your international conglomeration of companies. You know, you do, and you, we see it all the time in the news world. You know, these people come out and they have scandals and then all of a sudden, you know, they're on a different network with their own brand new show at 7 p.m. And, and this, and it's not just that world. It's all obviously all of Hollywood. It's, you know, the royalty. Uh, yeah. <laughs> you know all the. So you, you know, once you get to a certain echelon of society, there is, you know, failures just propel continue just to propel you upward. That's really kind of maybe where the no press is bad press, really uh, kind of cements its its place in reality. Yeah, and I would say as an adjunct to that, like. You know, when you say fail up, I've seen another aspect of that where people are incompetent, but because of the way mm -hmm. they look or because of mm -hmm. their orientation, they get promoted. Mm -hmm. Like I, I, I knew, I knew this young woman, she was a lovely young woman, but she was not a leader. And because they wanted her to be a leader, you know, the, the average person in her position was in charge of like 30 people, but because this person looked a certain way or had a certain orientation, she was in charge of 30 people, but it became obvious she couldn't be in charge of 30. So then she was in charge of 10, and mm -hmm. then she was in charge of five, and then she was in charge of three, and then she was promoted. And it's like, dude, this person, and then and then she was she held such a rank that she was making decisions that influenced the entirety of the of the company. Mm -hmm. And it's like, mm -hmm. wait a minute, this person couldn't barely keep track of three people. Why would you put them in a position where they're in charge of 300 people. Like, yeah. isn't it clear they can't do that? But because of our blinders or because we want to be good people and it, we, we, we move them forward. And now you have this psychopath on one side and a failure on the other side. It's like, I, I, it just brings me to that quote of like, all it takes for evil to succeed is for good people to do nothing. You know? Yeah. Mm -hmm. No, I, in, I, I think you nailed it on the head. Uh, I've seen that replete, uh, not just in like a corporate setting in that environment, uh, but you also uh, see it in like venture capital type stuff a lot. Uh, you know, these people, they'll go out, this guy, this WeWork guy, um, you know, WeWork was that big company, dude lost yeah. <laughs> retarded amounts of money. It was ridiculous. And then he just went out and raised money for a brand new company and you know raised 48 million dollars or something like that basically just on his knee i mean like i the company rents out like business space or something i don't even know what it is either but they were able to go off and raise a whole bunch of money led by one of the biggest venture capital funds in, in the world uh just from a failed venture right yeah uh and it, so what is that you know, when you remove the meritocracy from the situation, uh, I think, you know, it, it's it's wonderful to have democracy. It's wonderful to have capitalism. You need meritocracy in that, in that trinity to balance those things out. Because hey, through the meritocracy as being the mechanism of advancement and growth in the society, now you temper the the capitalistic initiatives and you temper the corruption of democracy 
That is well put. You know, it. <sighs> there's a really good example of this. And this, this particular example I'm going to tell you has opened my eyes to the way the world works. And I can't speak on behalf of history, only the history of my life. So take that for what it's worth. There's a great book called Bad, I think it's called Bad Blood, and it's written by John Cariaco, and it's the story of Elizabeth Holmes. And for those that don't know, Elizabeth Holmes was, I think, I think she went to Harvard or she dropped out of Harvard because she invented, quote unquote, invented a technology that would take one drop of blood and allow you to test it multiple times for multiple things. And if you think about the power that that particular set of goals would do, if you could take one drop of blood and test it a hundred times, that would do so much for healthcare. It would do so much for people that have diseases. And so this was her idea, and she said that she had it all figured out. Now, let's just pull back for a minute. Elizabeth Holmes is a young woman who was an entrepreneur, and, and it's not so much that she had this idea. It's that this idea was almost thrust upon her. You look at the company she started, and like Kissinger is on the board, and the defense departments are on the board. And all of a sudden, as you read John Kariaka's book, you realize – this was never her idea. This was the same thing that Facebook was. It was like, here's this thing we want to create. And here's a woman. We need a here's woman. Our story. Here's yeah. our story. Here's, we're going to put all the money behind it. We're going to, we're going to bring our, our middle Eastern freaking weirdo enforcer to go to all the kids and be like, do this or I'm going to kill you. You know what I mean? And put the we're going to dress her on. like Steve Jobs. Ah! We're gonna dress, we're gonna put her in a turtleneck and make black and white pictures of her, and we're gonna send her out on speaking gigs to women's stuff, you know. And like, you just see the story, and you know, I guess if you have your eyes open, like that's the story always. That's it's the Zuckerberg mm -hmm. story. It's the same mm -hmm. thing, only in his case it worked, right. and it's the you know, and it's so once you see it once, I guess you see it as a pattern, like, and you know. It, it was just it was it was interesting because you got to see it fail, and you mm -hmm. got to see how. You know, I don't know if it wasn't ready. I don't think it was her fault. I think it was the the technology. They couldn't get the technology to work, so she. And it's, it's also amazing Cheers. to think how she how, how there's the fall guy there. So yeah, you are this person that gets uplifted as a savior. You could be Zuckerberg or you could be Elizabeth Holmes, but you're still the same person. It's just the story didn't work. Oh, just wait, Elizabeth Holmes will have her redemption arc. Oh, guaranteed. She's, yeah. I think that's uh, I think as, written into the soon, contract. Yeah, as soon as they break through on the technology, because people are very much interested in that technology. Like you said, that is a life changer for many, 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 many people. Uh, so that's that technology is still being researched. And as soon as they get it, all of a sudden you'll find the redemption arc and maybe she'll actually bring it out for real this time. Yeah, I don't know how I feel about her. Like, you know, John Kariakos had so many death threats because he wrote a book exposing that, you know, mm -hmm. and, you know, it, I don't, on some level, I feel like, I, I guess that's the Faustian deal, right? Like, hey, yep. you want to be famous and have all this money? I can make you famous right here. Look at this. You could be, you could be the next Steve Jobs. You want to take this? Are you sure? Yeah, go ahead. And you read her story and like, like she just got, 
on some level, I feel horrible for her. But on the other hand, I'm like, well, she kind of decided she wanted that. You know, I, I don't know how to feel. Maybe it's not my position to feel. It's just to see. Well, I mean, it's the story of the gin, too. You know, you get your three wishes. It just so happens that they're always going to screw you. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah, the, the only the only move there is not to play. I, mean, I guess you can take it back to war games. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. <laughs> Would you like to play a game? Chess no, no. or thermonuclear warfare? Off, off. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, I, I don't know, Ben. I, I, I think that, uh, I think you've been put in that position where you could have taken, you could have taken the big paycheck. You could have taken the briefcase. You could have mm -hmm. taken the, the, the big payday and, watch things crumble man what 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 do you think it was about being what do you think it was that allowed you to make the decision not to play uh, the reflection of looking at myself in the future uh you know i i knew that yeah you could you could try to get past it with fun and games yeah you can try to get past it with all these things but at the end of the day i i'm very well aware of my conscience and how how much i do feel about things and i knew that that just a would just it was a selfish choice at the end of the day because i knew it would ruin me essentially regardless of how much immediate success or potentially even downstream success if you want to measure success monetarily that may have been um, you know, it, it, there's also a component of, you know, another selfish component, which is legacy. What do you want to be remembered? Do you want to be remembered for, you know, somebody who took the dive in the sporting event? Or do you want to be remembered for paving your own way and doing and, and you know, building something great into it? Or, you know, developing a song that is played through the ages. Or, you know, making a painting that people still talk about hundreds and thousands of years after your death. I mean, there's all sorts of beautiful aspects to humanity and, and things to be remembered for in, in, in the greater uh, story of humanity. Uh, and that, that rings, that always rung well to me. I always wanted to be on that side of things, to be remembered for something of, you know, greatness, at least at the time. <laughs> yeah, man, I, I agree. I, I, at least in my circle of friends, and I would include you in this, like I have found, and I, as much as I want to say that this is the American way, I don't know. Cause I'm, I'm only born in America and maybe that this is a, I like, I want to believe it's a human thing. And that is the story of the underdog, the story of the, the man or woman who had no business being at the top, the story of the person that gets there and wins sometimes by not winning, by not playing the game, but mm -hmm. makes it to the top and shows the people that like, yeah, hey, I belong here and I have no business according to all your rules and all your games and all these things you're supposed to do to get there. I made it. Not because of that, but in spite of that, I still made it. You know, when I, I look, I think that that's why the world of boxing or the world of MMA has so many young men enthralled is because they mm -hmm. can see guys that, like, you know, th that make it, that probably had no business being there. And I think that that's mm -hmm. what also makes 
wealthy families or governments or state entities nervous is that they too know that they have an unfair advantage being where they are. And the only reason that they might be there is because they have an unfair advantage. And, you know, whether it's the Count of Monte Cristo or, you know, these other works of literature that just show you like, yeah, you, the person on the ground, more than likely have just as much, if not more talent than the person that's at the top. And I think that's just a beautiful story about the human condition. And I wish more people would embrace it. I, I think the underdog story is the human condition. <laughs> yeah. What do you, um, can you elaborate some more on that? Like, I love, I love that. Sure. Uh, I think you, we're faced in a world where there's pretty good evidence that there's <clears throat> pretty cyclic cataclysms on this planet that wipe everything out every now and again. <laughs> you know, we find fossils from all sorts of stuff all over the place. So, you know, to be alive on this planet right now, and especially achieving what we've achieved to today, I mean, we're the underdog story. And, you know, most of us are walking around completely oblivious to the actual existential threats that do face us on a daily level, probably for the better for most people, to be fair. Uh, but, yeah, I think we definitely uh, kind of, everywhere at least I've been uh, travels in my world, I think the underdog story is even appreciated more than here. Uh, yeah. I think there's a greater appreciation for the underdog story when you're when you're raised in an environment that has less. I think you get like you know you're more third world countries that I've been to. There's very they all love the underdog story, and especially from their perspective, like you know that's why. Uh, I think the World Cup is so big for a lot of these countries, yeah. right? It's the one, it's the one field that they can compete on at almost a fair level, you know. They and they didn't have the right gear, they didn't have the right coaches, they didn't have all this stuff, but they had the heart and the persistence. And then you get these Cinderella stories, right? And yeah. those things move nations down in a lot of these countries. So I think it's even, I think it's even a, a greater magnitude. In, in different parts of the world. Let me ask you this. Like, that makes me think, you know, when I think of the World Cup and I think of soccer, I think of South America. I think of Brazil and Pele and Argentina. But I also think of the Middle East, I guess. You know, I, I don't have a really great, thorough understanding of the World Cup. You know, I know that soccer or football is the biggest sport in the world. And here's my question to you. As someone who has traveled to Europe, as someone who has spent a lot of time in South America, you know, soccer being a team sport, it seems to me, at least in the United States, and maybe this is just me, but it seems like the individual sport, like boxing, or wrestling, or swimming, or is are individual sports something that is more accepted or, or, or more glamorized in the United States than South America is because I'm just thinking soccer is the biggest sport in the world. It's a team sport. And that seems to represent something different than the way Amer than the United States glamorizes sports. Is it, I guess football here is big too, but am I, am I making sense? Is, is the yeah. team sport something bigger in South America than an individual sport? I see what you're getting at. And I think, there could be a, a cultural factor. Yes, thank you. Them. Thank you. 
uh, I would actually say just, you know, thinking about it off the top of my head, it was probably more socioeconomic driven. That makes sense. Because a soccer ball can make 22 kids, you know, yep. able to do something as opposed to hockey or, or even like an individual sport, like a, you know, a boxing or something like that. You need the gym, you need the ring, you need the gear, you need all that stuff. So, and that's just expensive and yeah. untenably so in some of those places. So I think m more so is probably a socioeconomic factor, but you know, in that you also see like the Latin American cultures, cultures have a, a much greater emphasis on family. Right? Yeah. Um, yes. So I, I definitely think there's a cultural component in there as well. Yeah. I, I wonder if, um, I never thought about it until we just started talking about this, but it, it does seem that an individual sport, if you look at someone who is being trained in an individual sport from a young age, it changes the nature of what a team is. If you're an individual that goes out, like you have a team, but that team is there to support you in a different way mm -hmm. than a team of like Tom Brady, you know, than, than, than soccer or football or, you know, pick your team sport. Like it's, you, you, you begin seeing the world differently. Oh yeah. You win as a team, you lose as a team. Yeah. Or you lose as an individual or you win as an individual. It's, you know, you could, it's like if, if you are a great soccer player and you go out and you have a crappy game, the team can still win. But if mm -hmm. you are a boxer and you go out and you have a crappy fight, it's, you, you, you know, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And in some ways it's liberating because you know, it's all on you. But in some mm -hmm. ways, it's debilitating because it's all on you, you know. And then if you go through life thinking like that, you you could cut people out of your life, and maybe you don't. I I don't know. I, I, I there's wins and positives and negatives on both sides. I think. I think so too, and I think you know if you were to enumerate that over millions of different cases, if you could just look at them from a distance, I think you would definitely see clear positives and clear negatives from that. Uh, but I think it would be pretty consistent on the results. I think the people who are nurtured in that more, you know, personal self-contained sport, you're going to have more insular people. You're going to have, I think, I think you're going to have uh, probably a greater degree of relationship type related problems, communication problems, as opposed to somebody who by necessity had to figure out how to get along with a group of other people who are, more likely highly aggressive and, you know, really tuned up because you got all that adrenaline pumping, you know, figuring out the world from that perspective allows you the ability to communicate. You know, you can recognize, you know, when you need to diffuse a situation, when you need to use humor, you actually, a, a lot of people learn a lot of humor from, you know, that's why they call it locker room humor. Right. Uh, yeah. And so I, I think you get a you would get a more communicative person, somebody who's able to actually you know kind of express themselves a, a bit better than somebody who's just trained as like say a sprinter their entire life. Man, that would just it, be a guess. <laughs> yeah, no, it, it makes sense. I, in some ways, it it makes me really think about relationships, you know, and, and culture and the way cultures form relationships. No, you know, when you take somebody, if, if you meet, like I, my wife is Laotian and, you know, it's so interesting when I talk about the idea of individual sports and team sports and culture. And now I'm, I'm just going off the word of relationships, but 
it's no it's no strangeness to understand why people from different cultures sometimes probably break up more than more than they don't like if if you don't understand the very foundation on which someone's life was built how could you possibly relate to them thus you can't have that really even though the initial attraction may be so great if you're mm -hmm. a team sport and I'm an individual sport you know we're not we don't we're not building on the same foundation it's it's interesting to think about it from that perspective it is and it takes a long time to learn a culture yeah it does yeah. Lifetimes sometimes. Oh uh, yeah, I mean, depending on the cultures, like, right? You know, I learned a lot of different Latin American cultures, and within the Latin American cultures that I, you know, I've lived in some of those places for a year, two years. Yeah. Uh, even in that environment, you know, there's so many differences. There are di differences between all of those different cultures. Uh, you know, to the point where you have Costa Ricans who a, a good chunk of them will say, "Oh, we have no culture." Which is a wild thing to say, uh, but that's kind of what you know they they say. But yet at the same time, they're every single Costa Rican will tell you we haven't had a we haven't had an army since 1948. You know, so they have cultural things. They just don't identify it as the culture of like a Mexico, where they you know they have you know the Day of the Dead and things like this. They don't they don't really celebrate those types of events in like a Costa Rica. I mean, they still do because things are all kind of democratized, right, these days. Yeah. Uh, but their local traditions don't really have a lot of this. In fact, most of their local traditions um, are all kind of like cowboy traditions. You know, they have the festival and they try to uh, slide the needle through the ring, hanging from the rope, going at full gallop, which is wild. <laughs> have you ever seen that? <laughs> I never have. What is that? What is that? Oh, that's pretty awesome. They have this, this horse festival called Tope. Uh, and so all the cowboys and cowgirls come down and it's, I mean, young is like 12 year old kids, uh, who can ride a horse better than I will ever be able to ride a horse, <laughs> you know, full gallop. And I'm talking a ring, a ring, like, you know, size of your finger ring hanging from a rope across the street. And they come in with a needle at full gallop and have to thread it through the ring. Wow. And it has a, an end on it so it'll stop if they get it. And every year, people get it, uh, which blows me away. You know, the visual acuity, the, you know, the reaction time, all of that stuff, let alone if the wind blows or you fart yeah. on the way in. I mean, <laughs> wild stuff. <laughs> yeah, that's it is amazing to me. And it makes me think about today how there seems to be this dichotomy on some level. There's a war on culture because some people see it as a obstacle or a barrier to community while other people see it as the foundation of community. And like it's, I, I guess this is what wars are fought over on, on, on the most basic mm -hmm. level is this is right. And this is wrong. This is our culture. This is not our culture. And, you know, and, may, and maybe that takes us full circle back to what's happening in our world today. I think that might be what is printed on the newspapers for every war of five. But I think <laughs> the motivating factor in all those is resources. Yeah. I, you know, in that when you can, when you look at that and, and you just see it over and over and over again, you have to wonder, well, why would they ever stop? And then you look at the world today and you go, oh, they haven't stopped. Okay, we're just do, we're just repeating this process. The difference is again, 
you know, back to our conversation before is now we have lights to shine into the dark corners. You know, everybody has a camera in their pocket, not necessarily the camera that they would first think of when they're pulling out the camera, but they have that ability to look at snapshots of the world from all over the world and peer into those dark corners and dark recesses. You know, uh, rewind 70 years ago, we would never know Nancy Pelosi is the greatest stock trader in the world. Yeah. Yeah, it's it reminds me. I remember um <clears throat> this was back in the Bush Jr. days. So I guess back in Iraq. And I, I remember for some reason I remember this interview with Dick Cheney. And I was a younger guy then, you know, and I, I didn't really pay too much attention to politics. And I remember him saying I, I don't know what who was interviewing him or what it was on, but I distinctly remember him saying when asked about um, the war in the Middle East, he says, we need to be there so that doesn't come here. And that always stuck mm. with me. And I was like, what the frick was he talking? You know, and, and, and it, for some reason that just stuck in my head. And now that I see it here, I go, oh, that makes sense. Like, you know, when in, on the topic of resources, you know, I think of the strategies that I've read in books and the strategies that my country applies to other countries when they want to take their resource. And that's divide and conquer. Hey, let's, let's put this wedge in between the Israelis and the Arabs. Let's put this wedge in between the Sunnis and the Shias. Let's put this wedge in between the Han and the Uyghurs. And let's drive that wedge as deep as we can so that while they're fighting, we can just go and take what we need. And we can back both sides. We'll take some from their property. We'll take some from their property. And as long as we extract X amount before they get at each other's throats, we're good. Hopefully mm -hmm. we can take all of it, but at least we can get this much. Here's the business plan. Mm -hmm. and, th and then now all of a sudden I see this wedge between man and woman, gay and straight, black and white, minority and, and these people. And so, you know, I see the implementation of sanctions being put on our own country. You know, this idea that we're putting sanctions on Russia, we're just sanctioning ourselves. We're making it more difficult for us to live so that corporations or family offices or special economic zones can be brought to this country. You're seeing all these things put in place that were put in place in other countries being put in place in our country. And I think it comes down to resources. I think I think you're absolutely right. And, you know, the resources of the times are the lithium, the yeah. rare earth elements, uh, and the ability to manufacture. Yeah. Uh, you know, uh, this rampant uptick in consumerism needed a manufacturing center, and that was China. Uh, yep. You know, in doing so, that allowed China, you know, the world kind of, you know, gave a blind eye to China to let them do whatever they saw fit in order to facilitate that quote unquote need. Uh, and here we are is, you know, uh, yeah. here we are. And it, it's, <laughs> you know, it's one of those things where there's, there's many contributing factors, but one that I think was very much unforeseen by many of the groups who participate in, in this larger game is the advent of the internet and the ability for us to have these types of communications and for people to talk because now there's a realization that hey we all are on the same rock 
we all are accessing the same resources, there is relatively finite, you know, sets of resources for many of these different things that we've now grown accustomed to in our society. Why are we going to blow each other up again? And so now there's actually a real question of why being asked. Before it was back, like what you said, when Cheney had his speech, it was, well, we have to go over there so it doesn't come over here. Yeah. The implication was is that if we didn't go and fight over there, we were going to have fighting on the streets in the United States. That was never a reality of what could possibly happen, right? There's no, there's no startup Arab state, you know, or, or you know, religious movement that was going to build a, a navy to be able to cross the Atlantic and come attack New York. It was never going to be the case. But, you know, when you can imply that, all of a sudden now you get all this hoopla and people willing to go to war. But if all of a sudden we can ask the question, why? Because we get reports from people in Iraq. Like, oh, no, I'm here. Just grab my groceries today. Oh, what, you're not trying to build a, a navy and come kill us? No, nope. just go and get my groceries. Oh, okay. Hmm. Maybe maybe we should talk before we go blow people up. What do you think, guys? <laughs> and so I think we are seeing a bit more of that as being a contributing factor to how all this is playing out. Yeah, I, I, I think that question of why should be at the foundation of a lot of people's philosophies and ideas and, and should be a great starting point for the majority of conversations. And I, I think it can be... I think it can be a, a cordial conversation, you know, and, and yeah. some people are afraid to ask it. Some people are afraid of the answer to it, but I, I think it's something that is, it needs to be asked more often. I am um, Benjamin. I always feel like right when we start getting warmed up, I get the call to go somewhere. Like I, I just, I got all these questions in my mind, but I have a beautiful eight year old girl waving at me like, dad, it's time. It's time, dad. And so if, if, if I don't go there, she's coming here. And uh, I, I love talking to you, my friend. And I, I feel, I, I really enjoy the conversations. And I, I, I feel like they, they uh, are very rewarding. And I, I'm getting some feedback where that comes. And I, I know you got some big stuff on the table. So before we go, why don't you tell people where they can find you, um, what you got coming up and what you're excited about? Well, I'm, I'm never sad to lose to the daughter. So enjoy <laughs> Thank and you. Have a good afternoon. Uh, BenjaminCGeorge.com. I actually just posted up a new homepage. I'll be dropping all sorts of new updates on that. Uh, there'll be podcast stuff, uh, stuff with George, stuff with all the other people on the Psychedelic Sunday Roundtable. Yeah. That was I, that was my test name. What do you think? I love it. Yeah. <laughs> I think I think that that should be the name of it all the time. It, and I... I, I I love how it's growing. And I think people are going to be really excited when they see the homepage and they not only see the homepage, but I think people are going to be really excited when they get to have the, the uh, Mr. Wizard experience. <laughs> well, it's coming. Poco and yep. poco, as they say, little by little. Yep. Well, that's what we got for today, ladies and gentlemen. I really appreciate your time and I hope everyone has a wonderful day. Uh, reach out to Ben, reach out to me, reach out to the rest of the people on the psychedelic Sunday roundtable. And um, yeah, that's what we got going on. Thank you so much for today. And we'll talk to you guys soon. Aloha.
Aloha, everyone. Thanks for taking a moment to hang out with me in the True Life Podcast. I truly appreciate it. If you're taking some time to listen to this, whether it's your first podcast with me or you've been with me the whole way, I truly want to say thank you from the bottom of my heart. Additionally, I would like to try to inspire everyone. The world is a crazy place. And if you listen to your heart and you take some chances, I really think the world will unfold in front of you in ways you can't imagine. I've been doing the podcast for about five years. Last year, I decided to take the plunge. Well, circumstances dictated that I took the plunge. And I did. I've begun working on the podcast full-time for almost a year now. And it's been so rewarding to me that I just want to try and inspire other people. If you have a dream, if you have a vision, follow the voice in your heart. Listen to the song on the wind and embrace the challenge. I think you're strong enough, you're smart enough, and you're good enough to make your dreams come true. But you have to believe in them. And I truly believe wholeheartedly that if you take a chance, a real chance on what is possible, then your dreams will unfold in front of you. Uncertainty can be a monster. It can be something that we run away from. But much like fear, if you stand in front of it, it's not that big of a problem. I know everyone listening to this has a dream and a vision, and I hope you all conquer it. And I want you to know it's possible. Take baby steps and move towards it, and you will get closer to it. Your relationships will be better. Your life will be better. And you know what? You deserve it. You're an amazing person. If you get a moment, go down to the show notes. If you can, support the show. Thank you so much for being here. Now let's get to it.